Welcome to Propel, a podcast by Fellowship Pacific to propel you and your ministry forward in the mission God has for you. I'm your host, Jessica Powell, and in today's episode, we're talking about one of the most common frustrations facing our churches, not having enough leaders. So often we have great vision and great strategy, but we run into this lid that is the number of qualified faithful leaders we need to carry it out. But what if God has already provided the leaders we need for the vision he has given us? To talk about this, our regional director, David Harita, sat down with Katie Cole, the author of the book, Developing Female Leaders, as well as the founder and CEO of Katie Cole & Company, where she works extensively with leaders both in business and ministry. You'll get to hear them discuss how churches can get better at developing and releasing the potential of what is often the largest untapped group in our congregations, women. So let's get to it. Here's David's conversation with Katie Cole. Welcome to our podcast today. This is David Harita, Regional Director for Fellowship Pacific, and uh, we're really happy to have with us Katie Cole. Uh, Katie has a wealth of experience in churches and leadership in general. Uh, if you check out her website, it's katiecole.com, you'll see that she was originally a nurse. She was the Director of Wellness at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Then she was the Dean of Student Development, and then moved more into the church world where she was an executive leader at a Florida Florida church that grew from 3,500 to 23,000. It didn't say the time frame, Katie, but it was pretty quick. It sounded like a pretty explosive growth. And you became the director of multi-site, which was over eight campuses, started a school of leadership, did a lot of those things. And then 2016, transitioned again out of that to start your own business where you're helping both churches and companies working with places like the Leadership Network and others. So Anyway, a ton of experience in the whole area of leadership, women in leadership, and how that actually works out in real church world and corporate world as well. So anything you'd like to add to that by way of introduction, Katie? Well, thanks, David, and thanks so much for having me here today. Uh, No, I think that kind of summarizes it. I'm sure we'll tap into different pieces of that as we continue in the conversation. Okay, great. Um, you were also, I should mention this, a speaker at one of our leverage events recently. So you recorded a um, sermon. Was that a sermon or a training session or what were you doing with them, Katie? Oh, it's usually a little bit of both for me when I'm talking to women's groups like that. But yeah, a little inspiration, a little biblical truth and a little how-tos. So great. Thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. Uh, my interest in this conversation with you, obviously there's the issue of women in leadership, which we'll get into, but our organization, Family of Churches, we have five or four primary goals. And one of those is in the area of developing leaders. Another is in the area of planting churches. And our strategic approach to planting churches primarily uses multi-site. And so you have kind of a nexus where those things all come together. So we're going to try and talk about some of those things, if that's okay with you, because it's an experience that's fascinating and I think can probably help us. Absolutely. Sounds great. Okay, so you've also written a couple of books. One of those books is called Developing, or its title is Developing Female Leaders, Navigating the Nine Minefield and Releasing Potential of Women in Your Church, where you did a project to understand, so you interviewed a number of women. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the project that led to that book? Uh, sure. The the goal of the book was really to help my clients, the church clients that I was working with, who were doing exactly what you mentioned a minute ago, trying to expand their church, trying to launch campuses. And every time we would get into the strategic planning sessions, we'd run into this lid of number of qualified faithful leaders. 
And as we started looking over and analyzing their numbers and their metrics, we started to realize that most women, even if they were growing in their leadership pipelines, were not making it all the way into these more formalized leadership roles. And people were getting really frustrated and they weren't able to do all of the dreams and goals that they feel like God had given them. And so I started working with them on how to uh, just sort of make more on-ramps, allow for women to flourish more, helping the women in their churches to stay in the game. And uh, as we got into it, started to realize there's really a lot of places where we're missing each other. Uh, I've never really thought of myself as a, like a big female leader champion. I just love church. It made a huge difference in my life. I've been volunteering since I was in middle school. I care deeply about how well we do with local church ministries. And so when I saw that we were missing out on many of the leaders God had gifted us, and it was a lot of times just through misunderstanding, miscommunication, bad assumptions, I really wanted to sort of get in there. Um, I have a master's degree in human resource development, so I love figuring out how to help release human potential in organizations and churches. Uh, I knew we could make a lot of progress if we just figured out what was going on and how we could make it better. So the primary goal for you then was just seeing more women released into ministry as a way of helping build churches. Is that? I think summary? I would say the goal was to help churches reach their mission and make sure right. they were using all the leaders God had brought them to do that. I think when we set out to launch a campus or do build a new building or create a new ministry, God usually has given us the leaders and the money and the vision and the resources to do it. If we don't know how to leverage that correctly, we can't uh, fulfill what he's called us to. And that's what I see happening in our human potential. I see it in a lot of other ways, too. I see women oftentimes getting left out. I see different ethnic groups. I see sometimes older saints not being included in. I see sometimes young leaders not being included in, people with different physical disabilities. And so my heart is really to make sure if someone has been given a gift of leadership or has leadership skills and capacity, they have a role in our church. It's our job as leaders to identify that, uh, engage it, develop it, and steward it for the lifetime that they're at our church. Yeah, I th think for our family of churches, probably, well, all of those are actually untapped groups to some degree, but maybe women are the largest untapped group in terms of leadership and releasing them fully into the ministry God's given them so that the mission of the church gets achieved. So I noticed in your book, I think you mentioned 60 or 62% of most churches are women. I think ours is a 58% level. So I would see yeah. the same thing, I think. Yeah, they're usually over half of the congregation and most, especially North American congregations, the number is even higher in other uh, countries. And, but they generally make up less than 10 to 15% of our formalized leadership roles. And that's anything that has a formal title. It could be the director of your greeter teams. It could be a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader. It doesn't even necessarily have to be some of the more bigger or higher level controversial roles like senior pastor or elder, just in our churches as a whole, less than 10 to 15% of our leadership roles filled by women. So we're really missing out on that giftedness, those voices, that perspective. And we're really missing out on modeling what it means to be a body that is rich and diverse, where we come together around uh, the things that we agree on rather than exclude people because of the things we disagree on or see differently. Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of reasons to get involved in that kind of area of developing women in, into leadership roles. I was thinking about this from a baseball term. I always do that. It's unfortunate that anybody within our family of churches can even say, oh yeah, David's gonna use some baseball illustration. But I coached for 20 years 
And uh, this would be kids recreational league stuff, fairly high level, but still recreational league baseball. And we would have to do a draft every year. And so I would look to draft athletic young people, there's men and women or boys and girls playing in this, who looked like they had a lot of potential but hadn't yet reached it because they wouldn't be high draft picks if you want to use that. But I could take a person who was a three out of 10 on baseball skills, but was athletic and help them to get to a seven or eight pretty quickly where I couldn't get a nine to a 10 without a whole lot of work. And so at the end of most years, we would make, in this case, provincial championships be a pretty good team because you're taking those guys who had untapped potential, releasing it, and you made a much faster, bigger impact on your team and results right off the bat. So from a strategic, even a math perspective, <laughs> it made a difference. I think that's still true for our churches. Is, it, is that what you would find? Absolutely. I think there are definitely eight, nine, and 10 level female leaders out there that also need to be pulled into the game because what we're finding in sort of our crossover generation where women were not included at all in leadership to what will be, which is women included uh, significantly in leadership, we're in the crossover. And it's really up to us if we're in leadership positions. It's not necessarily our fault that we inherited this, but it is our responsibility to make the shift into what God has really ordained for us. And uh, I think of John 17, you know, that Jesus's prayer that we would be unified, that we would all be participants and a part of heaven on earth, basically through the local church. So it's our job to do that. And I would say, uh, but yes, um, I think that the challenge is that when you have a female leader with potential, just like you have guy leaders with potential, a lot of times women don't know they're invited in. They don't realize that they should be stewarding these gifts. They, In fact, most of us grew up with this unfortunate, unintentional message that our giftedness was actually sinful or something to correct, not something to be leveraged. So many leaders, when they're young, um, if they have natural leadership wirings, either the actual Romans 12 gift of leadership or any of them that are that we sort of value as high and important leadership gifts now, apostleship, teaching, uh, administration, those can all be things that we as a church culture would identify as a leader as having potential. Well, in a young leader, that usually is someone who's kind of loud. They're a little brash. A lot of times they have, you know, they're complaining or pointing out things that could be better. Uh, our culture loves to see that in young men. We think that shows great uh, aptitude. We see great potential in them. We're used to leadership in men looking immature and seeing that grow to maturity, just like your, your baseball story. We're not used to seeing that in women, and we don't really like it as a culture as a whole. When you get a 16-year-old girl who's loud and brash and telling you what you could do better, most of the time we say, if she could just have have a gentle and quiet spirit, if she could just learn to listen more than she talks, if she could just not be so bossy. And I would like to say that's actually the same thing in just two different genders. We're just not as ready to see that as a positive of something to be nurtured. That's not her quote of athletic ability, right? We see it. And in fact, many of our ministries spend a lot of time focusing, uh, many women's ministries spend a lot of time focusing on staying quiet, on um, being in the background of learning how to support, of learning how to hold your tongue. And those are important qualities of a Christian. But when you're a leader and you have something to say, that's actually, it's obedient to say it. Now in the right way, at the right time, that's what maturing in leadership looks like. But we have to get better at welcoming women with immature gifts, as well as we welcome guys with immature gifts. 
Yeah, I, uh, it's kind of interesting, Katie. Normally when I'm doing these podcasts, I try and do some work looking at reading about the topic in general that we're going to talk about and looking for some quotes that you could use in it. But I was looking at a number of quotes about women in church ministry and I thought, well, maybe not actually. <laughs> You're not, <laughs> so, it's not the place you want to go to be inspired as a female leader, let me tell no, you. No, <laughs> it is not where you want to go to be inspired. So I have heard you say, however, that, which is, I guess, this topic, that as women grow up, leadership is usually separated from their spirituality, but for men, leadership is considered an expression of their spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you mean when you're, it's kind of what you were already talking about. Do you want to expound on that at all? Sure. I think for most guys, and I'm not a guy, but I know a lot of them and I work with a lot of wonderful pastors. And when I hear them talk about their kind of their developmental journey or their spiritual growth journey, their leadership role, the opportunity to lead in the church is intricately connected to their spiritual growth. So many of my friends who have been pastors or in full-time ministry, as long as I have had in their teenage years, someone encouraged them to get up and preach a sermon at their church or speak at the youth conference or uh, give the close devotional at the summer camp for their high school, whatever. They had all these opportunities and it was a faith step for them. They learned how to pray. They were forced to study scripture because they had to. Uh, they had mentors giving them feedback and challenging them. And it was a faith journey to do that. Um, and it grew their leadership and it grew their trust in God. And honestly, it grew their calling. Most of them, if they had not had those early opportunities, probably would not have gone into ministry. Women, however, have completely different experiences with that. Usually, especially in around later high school and definitely in as a young adult or as a young married or mom, we are oftentimes invited into women's ministry spaces, which focus a lot on spiritual development. I mean, many of us have done countless rounds of, you know, Beth Moore Bible studies or Kay Arthur or what, you know, whatever video thing you want to sign up for. We can just sort of circle in that women's ministry world for a really, really, really long time. And we learn a lot of incredible biblical truth, but very rarely do we learn actual leadership. Very rarely are our ministry skills sharpened. At the most, we might become a table facilitator, but we're certainly not doing the teaching. We're watching a video and we're asking good questions. We're bringing good baked goods to the buffet that we have for breakfast that morning. We might serve in childcare, you know, to take our turn back there, but we're not growing in these big faith steps where we are being courageous and bold and exercising, especially anything that's a, a stronger leadership style gift. Uh, to do that, we have to go to leadership training. And so we pop over to other areas of the church, which many times don't include women or don't go out of their way to include women. And so now we got spiritual growth happening in one side and leadership development happening in another, and the worlds don't connect unless we as leaders know how to connect them for ourselves. So our spiritual mentors are not our leadership mentors. And in many times our leadership mentors are all men and many of them, and rightly so are cautious about getting too involved in our lives, giving too much feedback, asking too many questions. Uh, they tend to be a little standoffish and protective of the connection we have with them. Again, I appreciate that about my male leaders having space and safety, but for me as a young leader and for many other women, we grow up not really knowing how to be a whole person. In women's ministry, I look one way. On Sunday morning, I look another way. In the leadership class, I look another way. But when I go to work, I'm fully who I am. And that becomes a place that women tend to flock to really exercise their calling because they can be all of themselves. They can pull all those things together in a much more holistic way. And I just like to encourage churches, women need that in their church 
also, because we want them to be whole integrated people at church more than any other place in their life. Right. So Katie, I don't know if you're comfortable with doing this. You can just say no, if you don't. And the people in the podcast would love it if you just tell me no. So, uh, <laughs> or you'll edit it out later. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I don't edit it. I don't edit it. They keep them all to put, compile together all the bad things that David might say on a podcast. So, uh, Katie, what about your own experience for that? So, in for you growing up as a church, where was the struggle for you to to get into leadership, if there was one, or was your experience pretty good through all of that? Well, I would say that my experience um, in compared to most women is fantastic. And I didn't even necessarily know that there were hindrances or barriers that I had either overcome or was challenged by or had kept me back uh, till really I started researching this a couple of years ago, again, out of the motive to help these churches have more people in their leadership pipeline. Uh, but once I started diving into it, I started to realize and, and put some stories and experiences together in my own mind. So uh, it related to the topic we're talking about of this kind of bifurcation of spiritual growth and leadership development. I remember really clearly being uh, new on the church staff that I was recruited to be a part of. I'd come out of a deanship at a Christian university. So it was a very high position at the college. Uh, I had a master's degree in human resource development and organizational leadership. I knew what I was doing. I was a confident leader. I felt great about being on the team. Um, the title I was given was really weird. It didn't really describe anything. I call them affectionately now girl titles, you know, in air quotes, because they weren't quite sure. I'd, I was the first woman to do these kinds of things at this level. And and it, it whacked up against all sorts of assumptions. Um, I found out later my pay and benefits were very different than my peers or the people I was leading, to be honest. Um, one, one memory in particular that I think points to this that was probably uh, the one I had to kind of process the most, because I get all those other things. They're just systems are in place. It was nothing personal. Uh, but at the uh, in my early years there, I was there were a whole bunch of other kind of uh, first-year pastors that were doing different things, and they decided to bring in some very heavy-hitting uh, teachers from a theological school who wanted to spend their winters in Florida. <laughs> and so they brought them in and basically for like a hundred dollars a class, uh, many of the, of these young pastors got to go to seminary, like get their MDiv on site, uh, at our church with these world renowned pastors. I didn't even know that was being offered. And I know that no one sat there and said, don't invite Katie to this. I know I just was never a thought in their process. I was on right. no one's radar. It, I, I didn't show up on any lists of ministry or pastoral staff that they wanted to develop or pour into. If I had known about it early enough, if I'd asked, I know they would have let me take it. I would have loved to have gotten my MDiv in my 20s and done it all then. And so I look back on that now and I'm like, no one wanted to leave me out. Actually, they really believed in me. They were doing everything they knew to do to accelerate me and to develop me and to give me opportunities. Uh, but the, the process, the systems, the mindset, the way things were set up, even people's own mentality did keep me separated from some of those pieces. And so I read a lot of John Maxwell. I went to a lot of leadership conferences, but I didn't get to do it on site with my peers in ministry. And so those are the kind of things where I think even when we don't realize that we have biases about women, even if we were to say theologically, I believe women can do every level or almost every level, or I'm for women, um, 
or even uh, in environments where I'm actually pretty conservative and there's roles I would never invite women to. I think we can all agree that we would want women to be as equipped in scripture and tested by our systems and tested by a professor so that wherever they're going to speak or to lead or to minister on behalf of our church, we know we can trust them to steward God's word and the heartbeat and the DNA of our church correctly. And so the fact that we would accidentally leave them out or that I wouldn't know I can ask to be a part of something, that's really where we're missing opportunities. And it hurts the church, it hurts our leadership, and it hurts us as women to realize later that there were things we were simply not included in because no one thought of us. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people's experience, certainly, it's not always, in, sometimes it's intentional, but sometimes it's not, it's just- More that, often that than not, it's not been, intentional. It's been trained out of us, almost, or conditioned out of us. Hey, um, you talked about women getting into ministry. So I, let me give you two terms that you used in your book. I think we all know what we're talking about when we talk about a glass ceiling. At least I hope we all know what we're talking about when we say those words. But you also talked about sticky floors and glass cliffs. Sticky floors, I know a little bit about. The glass cliffs was a new thing for me. Uh, do you want to just mention those two sort of briefly before we move on? Yeah, so I'll set up, you know, glass ceiling uh, in the church world, we call it the stained glass ceiling, uh, those invisible organizational barriers that keep women from moving up in leadership levels. Most women can get to a manager, coordinator or manager level, but have a hard time breaking through to director, uh, pastor, uh, president, vice president, whatever the, the vernacular is for those higher level authoritative leadership roles. The, the sticky floor is sort of the opposite of that. Rather than having these hindrances over a woman that keeps her from progressing through, the sticky floor is actually those conversations and dialogues that women have with themselves in their own mind that keep their feet stuck to the floor and prevent them from moving forward in leadership or development or moving up the ladder in terms of opportunity. So uh, I, there's one research project I talk about in the book that I feel like really illustrates this. And that is that men and women tend to look at job descriptions or job opportunities very differently. And when I say job description, it could be for a volunteer role. It could be for a role on staff. It could be for something at her professional career. But when a guy looks at an opportunity for a promotion or a new uh, volunteer job or, um, or new opportunity, when he looks at the job description and he, if he reads through it and he feels good of about 60% of what's on the job description, he thinks I'm going to apply for this job. I probably will get it. If I don't know what I'm doing, I'll Google it. I'll ask my dad. I'll fake it till I make it. Whatever the case may be, I'm going to like crush this job. That's kind of, for most men, that's the internal first reaction. Whether he gets a job or not, I don't know, but he feels confident he could get it and he could do a great job. For a woman, on the other hand, when she reads through a job description, an average woman has to feel confident of 100% of everything that's on the job description from day one, or she won't even apply for the job. Think about that. She won't even apply. She figures there's someone better out there. She figures it would be an embarrassment for her to apply because uh, she doesn't have what it takes. Even if she's done the job before elsewhere or has all the skills necessary in her mind, she's questioning her ability figuring that she's probably not the right job. Uh, you may have heard the the uh, phrase imposter syndrome. This is one of the things that women tend to battle against as part of the sticky floor. So she won't even apply for the job. 
Now, if you think about how most of us do leadership development and uh, try to build leadership cultures in our church, we're looking for the eagle, as John Maxwell would say, right? Who's the person popping up and doing things that no one else is doing? Who's the one volunteering? Who's putting their name in the hat? Who's applying for every job? Who's sending you their e- their resume when they graduated from seminary, letting you know they're available? Like the, those are the leaders, the people who initiate, the people who offer, the people who show up even when they're uninvited. We love that about leaders. Well, if you think about this 6100 syndrome, most women will never, ever, ever do that. In fact, even if you have a job posting that they are welcome to apply for, they still won't even apply for it because their standards of perfectionism are so high of themselves. So that's the sticky floor. We have a lot of opportunity as leaders to reach beyond that sticky floor, to um, meet with women that we think have leadership in them and say, hey, we've got this role opening. I can't guarantee that you'll get it, but I want you to at least apply for it. We'd love to interview you. We'd love to learn about you more. Here's why I think you could do a great job at this. Let me also tell you that we're going to train you. We don't expect you to be great from the first day. Let me show you why I think you already have half the qualifications for this role or can, you know, do this with your eyes closed. Most of the time, if you, especially as a spiritual leader, can reframe that sticky floor based on reality. They don't need more encouragement. They don't need more rah-rahs. We don't need more t-shirts that say the future is female. What we need is someone to care about us and know us well enough and pay attention to us enough to sit down and say, hey, you've been a greeter for six years. You already coordinate all the schedules. This job to coordinate all the greeters and first impressions team, you're already doing 80% of this job. Will you please apply for it? They need someone to help me get outside the lies and the misconceptions and the negative thinking I have in my mind and help me see it based on truth, based on God's truth, based on the reality of who I am and based on how you see me and what the job really is versus what I'm scared it would be. And when it comes to ministry roles and volunteer roles, the pressure is even higher because if we fail at it, not only now are we failing ourselves and failing you, we're also failing God. And most women, especially female leaders, are smart enough not to take on something where they think they might fail. So it's our job as leaders to help them think differently. Okay, so asked you about the glass cliff as well. But before we do that, let me just sort of burrow into that point just a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, well, I'll just say this as a side thing. I've wondered the longer I'm doing my job, which is leading a group of churches and working with a broad number of pastors, most of who least have been male, not all of them now, uh, whether men actually feel that way. I know that studies, some studies have said that, that they feel confident. I wonder just how much is false security. So your view of uh, fake it till and make it may be more true than they actually believe they can. So we spend a lot of time trying to help our pastors. We do things called EQ boot camps, which sell out uh, people to come and do self-awareness because there's deep insecurity a lot of the men on those issues of confidence as well. So sometimes I wonder if that's actually a true generalization about men as well, whether they're actually that confident or not. But anyway, that's a side issue. I agree with that. I also think um, most men in ministry have more desire to be humble and have worked on sort of those sides of their character than the cocky ego, I can do anything kind of space. Um, So yeah, I think in the zone of either professional work, um, like healthcare or ministry, um, there definitely are some tweaks to that statistic. Right. Anyway, it'd be an interesting conversation to have another time about what their insecurity comes out like and what that. Yeah. And whether like. it comes out in applying for the job or in showing up and doing good work for the job long term. 
Yeah, a lot of interesting questions about it. So in, you have another book, a short book on sticky note leadership, which has some great ideas. It's kind of a short, almost fable style book, sort of a Lencioni type thing, um, where the third thing you talk about, the third concept for that is that personalized equipping fuels great performance. So when you talk about that with women coming through a sticky floor kind of experience, and we're trying to help women grow into leadership roles within our church or agency or company even, how does that personalized equipping play out in that role for helping them? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that uh, research on female female leader development has shown us is that most women receive what we call quote, vague praise, vague praise. So rather than constructive feedback, they tend to get a great job on that. Or it was really fun to have you up on the stage this weekend or good sermon, or you look really cute or love your haircut. Like it's these really great affirmations that do make you feel good for a second. But in terms of actually developing a leader does very little. And so what I encourage people to do in terms of really addressing the sticky floor and that personalized uh, encouragement and equipping is to give really, make sure you're being very constructive in your feedback to female leaders. I think some, it's often, uh, I work with men, uh, male leaders who are scared to give honest feedback to female leaders because they are worried it's going to hurt their feelings. They worry that it's going to be discouraging to them or it might crush them. I would just challenge that if you actually have a leader on your hands, leaders love feedback. It might hurt. <laughs> it might, you know, resonate with them for a while. It might linger. It might even make them gun shy next time. But at the end of the day, a leader responds to, to well-meaning, honest, constructive feedback. So we found that, um, guys tend to give this to other guys much more easily than they give it to women. So let's just take uh, weekend announcements. This is an area that everyone always has lots of comments and feedback for. So someone, a guy gets up to give feedback. Um, we just want to make sure that when, if you use a woman to get up and give uh, announcements, you give her the same kind of feedback. So rather than great job with a thumbs up from across the room, sit her down and watch the video with it and give her three things that went really well and give her one or two things that need to get better for next time. So I love the way you got up there with confidence and you just took the microphone and really jumped right in. Your voice was clear. You were very articulate. I could you worked really hard on knowing the three announcements you wanted to give and that you had practiced it. Great job on all that. The next time you do it, and that key is really phrased because most women have a hard time imagining themselves growing into greater and greater leadership. They think they're given one opportunity and if they blow it, they're done. So when you say the next time you do it, you're vision casting, not only growth and development, you're vision casting that she's coming back, that she's going to have more opportunities. So the next time you do it, I want you to talk for less than 17 minutes. We really try to keep our announcements, you know, down to five. So when you practice it, make sure you don't repeat the thing or say it over and over or, you know, um, and then the other thing is you got to connect every, uh, every announcement to vision. So let's remember what our core values are. Let's remember what our vision is. So here's three examples of people from the past six months who have done a great job connecting their announcements to vision. So just remember those two things next time you get up. So that kind of feedback is so much more encouraging and so much more developing and is when to the sale of a leader. So just take the extra time to do it. It's not going to make her uh, mad at you. It's not going to crush her. If it crushes her, she's, she's 
probably needs to be in something different than an area that needs a lot of feedback. But chances are it's going to actually give her life. It's going to help her feel valued. It's going to help her grow. And you're going to get so much more return on that investment. Excellent. So could you hear me through that or was my dog barking in your ear? <laughs> I didn't hear your dog, but I think it's a big amen from the rafters going on back yeah, there. Yeah, that's, that's what, that's what we're going to go with. <laughs> Bad. You shouldn't have my dog here. Bad podcaster. Bad podcaster. So there you go. Um, you talked about glass cliffs as well. So that was a new expression for me, something I hadn't heard before. Do you want to explain what that is? This is something that's been uh, relatively new in the research of the last three to five years on women growing in higher levels of leadership. And that is many a times the high level opportunities and the high profile opportunities that women are getting. So more CEO positions, more special project positions, uh, turning companies around, turning churches around, turning ministries around. They're wonderful opportunities, but we call them a glass cliff because they're also high risk opportunities. Uh, most women are not invited into stable, successful companies or ministries so that they can take them to the next level. They're invited into things that are on the fritz, things that are going down, things that they've already put three guys through and they haven't been able to turn around. So I guess, well, I guess we'll just give Katie a shot and see what she can do. Women, which is my tendency, I volunteer for those roles. I'm like, well, no one's offering me opportunities. And I see that no one's getting this done. Let me volunteer. And I would say most of my ministry career for the last 20 years has been uh, me volunteering for high risk, uh, and what ends up being kind of low reward opportunities. So uh, they do open more doors, but the cost of them are significant. They're much more stressful than other opportunities. They cost you more leadership capital. They oftentimes cost you relational equity. And so the ability to deliver on those glass cliff opportunities are a make or break. And one of the things we've seen happen, and I see this in church world a lot, is that the girl is sort of the turnaround person, uh, the person you throw into the fire. And then as soon as the ministry is up and going, she moves on or gets replaced or maybe, quote, promoted to another turnaround project. And someone else comes in with the easier job once it's all cleaned up. And then they build a ministry that builds them a huge platform. So I just really like to raise the issue to pastors just to encourage us to be thinking, if you've got a female leader coming up your pipeline, what's the best role for her to succeed in? What's the best role for her to have the next five years to build something great rather than just the role that you're willing to give her because it's the one you can't quite get solved by anyone else? Right. Important, I think. So let's just move pass that then into so one of those roles that you had I don't know if you built it or were thrown into it as the executive pastor for multi-site um, how did you get in, into that did that evolve as the church started doing the multi-site or were you like thrown in say make it work or we're dead well for me this was I had sort of um, bypassed that glass ceiling I think and done enough uh, special projects and been around enough that when our executive pastor was becoming senior pastor, he actually recruited me uh, back into the church to come on to his executive team overseeing multi-site. So it was the first multi-site director, executive director position. It was the first uh, role that he hired on the new executive team and was going to be a part of his leadership. And I had worked for him directly for about uh, six or eight years beforehand. So he and I knew each other well. He knew me. He's always been a very strong internal champion of me. He would be what I would call one of the good guys, making room for me, 
uh, giving me great feedback, uh, giving me uh, great challenges, great opportunities, allowing me to lead. He's always been a strong uh, advocate of female leadership, even when I was in a system that maybe wasn't quite as ready for it. Uh, he was one of the guys that was championing me from the inside. So that was uh, really, I was so honored that he called and it was a wonderful experience to be a part of. Okay, so this is kind of a turn, a little bit of a right turn on the multi-site thing, but because you're really experienced in it and we're well, we're not totally fledging in it. We have some churches that have done it for a while, but a lot of our churches, it's, it's a relatively new concept for them. What are some of the trends that you see in multi-site? You still work with a number of multi-site churches, mm -hmm. I understand. So what are some of the trends you see that are, are important maybe for some of our churches or leaders to know as they consider that for themselves? Sure, I'll talk about a couple big trends that I think are more, now that multi-site's about 20 years old, where the trend is going. And then I'll talk a little bit about the impact of the coronavirus, because I think that's really shifted mm -hmm. multi-site significantly. So a couple of the big trends, uh, we are definitely seeing as Gen X comes of age into more senior pastor level leadership, uh, we're seeing much more emphasis on more uh, personalized experiences at the campuses. When multi-site first happened and we launched our first set of campuses, uh, we had, a, you know, the video was the big thing to overcome. And our campus pastors were really seen as sort of a host. We didn't even really call them campus pastors then. They were kind of the host. They were sort of the pastor on site. Um, they extended the senior pastor's leadership. But we're seeing a lot more churches now where the campus pastor is really like a little mini senior pastor. Many of them do live teaching or they hey, uh, just, have... Let me just add, they love to be called a mini senior oh, pastor. Oh, I'm so sorry. That did, yeah, that probably wasn't phrased correctly. But I a liked senior it. pastor of their of their own congregation where they have much more live teaching. Um, I would say we aren't giving up video totally, but I would say the more common trend now is a hybrid. Even if four, six, or even 12 times a year, there is a live uh, experience, a live teaching experience on every campus across the church, the multi-site church, that's becoming much more common. And we're seeing a lot of churches multiply significantly through live teaching experiences. Um, even weekly. So that would be one of the first trends. Secondly, uh, in multi-site, one of the most exciting parts about it is the most conversions, the fastest rate of growth, and the most ministry innovations is happening at our youngest campuses. So multi-site has really started to become a strategy for churches to stay on the edge of ministry innovation. That if I have even one or two campuses every few years launching, I'm going to see the greatest return on my investment from those, especially once you pass three campuses. Uh, you have a, a bigger return on the investment for that. Um, I think the other thing is that we're seeing a lot of churches, especially who have been doing it for a while, struggle with the financial model uh, because many of them have purchased big buildings, had explosive growth, especially if they were opening in more of a big box uh, experience with uh, full services and a big impressive building. Uh, those buildings, which were normally purchased used are now, you know, they all need new roofs and new HVAC and um, it, it either met expectations and they need more room or it didn't meet expectations and they're kind of sitting empty. So those pieces are really kind of giving a challenge to the multi-site. So even before the uh, coronavirus hit and we had closed downs and, and more online experiences, we were already looking and trying to 
innovate new financial models, new partnership with businesses? How, how fast is too fast? How many campuses do you want? Do you want a few campuses that are big or a lot of campuses that are little? Microsites, all those sorts of things have been part of the innovation uh, for the financial model that most people are running, uh, struggling with. Yeah, we have uh, all of those things, I think, experiencing our two biggest. One of them uses a very franchise model kind of thing, primarily video, but not exclusively with a, and just move to more of a matrix model for it. The other, it's much more like, like individual churches, almost in a network where they're sharing resources rather than kind of traditional multi-site kind of approach to it. So it's interesting to look at for a place like uh, British Columbia, where we are in the Yukon, which is part of kind of our primary turf, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of hub and spoke kind of communities. So there's only one really big center, which is Vancouver. Then after that, you get to centers with small towns around them. So this kind of thing works well compared to traditional church planting, where they really struggle in a small town of 2,500, 3,000 people that's totally resource-based. Have you seen that elsewhere, that same kind of pattern? Absolutely. I think the rural expansion is part of that uh, sort of microsite or uh, fast multiplication of those smaller campuses. It is where we see a lot more live teaching because of the contextualization that can happen. Um, anything across townships, uh, you know, we call them different things in the state sometimes, but those smaller communities that are connected to a bigger hub, they kind of go out like spokes. We see that quite a bit. It's innovated at very global levels too. So uh, like Hillsong Church, who I've worked with, they basically plant by continent. So the concept is the same. Um, it's just that ability to do rapid multiplication and contextualize it where you get the big network as well as the small experience. Um, so yeah, all of those things I think are key. I think now that the COVID has hit and sort of reshifted, we've had a series now of openings and closings, um, especially I was consulting with some churches in Europe a couple of weeks ago. They're about to do their uh, third round of closures um, when I worked with them. And so that sort of on again, off again, I think is going to have major impact in church moving forward. I think our society's uh, appetite for live in person um, is going to shift. I don't know exactly how anyone who knows how it's going to end is just um, taking a projection as a great gift of prophecy. So I don't, I'm not saying either of those, but I do think part of what we need to do in ministry is remember to stay very fluid and nimble and agile to adapt to the actual needs of our actual people. And that's where I think in multi-site, we have a great advantage because uh, most of us, uh, when we're doing multi-site, we're spreading across a geographical spread, which when it comes to any kind of containment, and part of this comes because my first career was in nursing. So I took all the epidemiology classes, but when we're able to contain things to geography, people have a greater sense of safety. Um, and then being able to cross over into our home church or small group um, expressions, being able to go small or go big and scale things really in a week or two's notice, rather than feeling like we have to create a whole nother ministry, but instead look at how do we give options to people. And so uh, that really connects with our, with, which is one of the other big trends I've seen in multi-site, which is that most multi-site churches have a global 
presence. Many churches are combining their multi-site strategy with their old missions work, which is based on relationships and often church planting. And so making those international campuses or international mission work now campuses and having this kind of bigger conglomeration. Now that many of our churches have gone online, we're seeing people pop up internationally that are connected to someone at your church. And now they're worshiping with their daughter and son-in-law who they never got to do it. And they can live Zoom while they're watching the service. I mean, there's all these connections and expressions now that if we're not careful, if we're not challenging ourselves to think globally, to uh, look at things from a different paradigm, we're going to miss the opportunity. And again, this comes down to God's got potential planted in what we're doing if we're willing to expand our mind and allow the potential to surface rather than thinking it only has to be one way or making assumptions that the goal is to go backwards. Um, The most concerning thing I'm hearing from some pastors is when they're equating a lack of engagement from their church family, especially uh, physical attendance at their cam- at their campuses, as uh, that they've either fallen away from the Lord or fallen away from the heart of the church. And so I'm just really encouraging all pastors, now is the time to get on the actual phone, not a message through Instagram or liking a post, but like an actual phone call to check in with all your people on your roster. It's not enough to just assume the people who come are the ones who are with you. There are people with you who just can't be with you. And so we have to rethink how we even mentally calculate who our core is. Yeah, right now uh, where we are, you're not even allowed to gather. So mm. the, the connecting, there's the online services, and then it's a ongoing challenge for churches. And I think all of us are talking to churches about we got to be talking to your people, got to be talking to your people. Community has to be real. Uh, and it's not determined by your building. So it's a, but it's a challenge for them, certainly. That's it true. Is. So uh, let's take that that next step because you've already kind of blurred into it already with COVID. So what changes do you think are occurring that are never going to return to normal for the church? I so, think that, mm-hmm, sorry. Yeah, we're, we're guessing on the prophecy thing. I saw you had a Kerry Newdorf podcast up on your website. So he's got a lot of things, lists of everything that's not returning to normal. So in your opinion, what would that look like? What would the future be? I, I agree with m- almost everything Carrie says. So I would definitely encourage you to look there. But uh, the things that I'm seeing the most of is I think we will always be a hybrid between live and online and that we have to redefine what we consider engagement and who our people are. I think we've been needing to relook at this for a long time and COVID is sort of God's way of pushing us into the thing we've been resistant to. I also don't think this is our last pandemic. And so anyone who thinks we're gonna get to the middle of 2021 and be done with this finally is like sorely mistaken. We have more in our future. This is what the future holds. So we have to be thinking differently. Um, I think in addition to that, our workspaces are gonna be much more centered at home much more virtual than uh, we've had in the past. It will be less than what we are right now if you're completely shut down. But I think that's going to be more of a normal way of doing things. Personally, I'm thrilled about this because women leaders tend to thrive in more flexible virtual environments because it allows them to have multiple priorities that don't compete directly with each other, but have a lot more integration into their life pacing. And so uh, if you're looking at moving the needle down or, you know, the ball down the field for women, 
keeping your staff and including more volunteers in your leadership rounds by uh, keeping as much virtual as you can or as much optional virtual. You will keep engagement, keep recruiting, and keep more people engaged in leadership if you continue to do that. Um, I think also uh, the redefinition of community. Uh, I grew up in the 80s when small groups were really hitting the scene and we lived that out a lot. I find that uh, millennials have very little taste of what that community looks like. We've lost that in many environments. And so looking more at geographically based engagements, what practical ministry really looks like, uh, again, a re, a re, uh, highlighting of Ephesians four, that if we are on staff or in a leadership role at our church, even if it's unpaid, if you are in a leadership role, your main job is to equip the saints to do works of service, not to do it yourself. I think we need a revolution in that. And this is going to force us. Uh, I'm happily forced to become better at that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So uh, we are looking at all those things for churches. We're also looking at them from a broader family of church or denominational perspective. What does that look like in the future? And we think it's pretty different. So um, thank you for this time. We could talk about the leadership end of this and we could talk about the church planting satellite end of this. And the women, there's all a whole variety of topics there. Maybe we'll do another one sometime. Because Well, I'd love, I'd love to be back. Thanks for having me, David. Really appreciate Great. it. Anything last that you'd like to say to the guys who are listening, guys, by which I mean men and women listening to this <laughs> broadcast? Well, I think to the literal guys, I just would encourage you, uh, this is a tough time and there are a lot of dynamics happening in your leadership. I just want to thank you for hanging in there and thank you for the hard work you're doing and just really encourage you that if you find you are not having the leadership base that you're wanting, that you, that would make your life easier, that would help lift your arms and lift your load to really look critically at who are just the few women that you know, in your congregation that you could invest in or have a conversation with and recruit. You don't have to change all your systems. You don't have to help all women become leaders. All women shouldn't be leaders, but there are women in your church that you probably know and love and trust that if you just had a great leadership conversation with her, not her husband, not the people around her, don't send your wife, have it with her and tell her what you need and give her the opportunity to step into it. You could really uh, help her fulfill her calling in your church and lighten your load significantly. So just small steps make a big difference. And to all the female leaders out there, my sisters, I just want to encourage you to please keep in the game. We are seeing record numbers of women in leadership step out because of the challenges that we're experiencing, balancing everything, especially if you have kids at home or you're caring for aging parents or family demands. I just want to encourage you to be creative, to talk to your leaders. Don't take yourself out of the game. Look for options. Uh, think differently. Allow God to reinvent your role or reinvent the way you approach it. Um, call me if you need someone to brainstorm with you, but please stay in the game. And I know there are great days ahead and we need you there and just showing up and being faithful to what God is calling you to calling you to do makes a difference. So thanks so much, David, for having me and I'll be cheering all of you on. Great. Thank you again, Katie. And you can get more of uh, the resources Katie makes available at katiecole.com. Her books are listed there, some of the podcasts she's done, and some of the things that she does resourcing in multi-site for companies and for churches. So thank yes, you, Yes, and we do, we do have two video courses, one for church teams and one for women that we just released. If you want kind of an online class or to work through with your team or as an individual on growing female leaders. So I encourage oh, you to great. check that out. Great. Thank you. 
appreciate this time very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to find out more about the resources that Katie has available or connect with her, you can do that at www.katiecole.com or check our show notes for the links. We especially encourage you to check out the two video courses that she has available. And as always, our team here at Fellowship Pacific is here to support you as well. To find out more about what resources we have available and to get in touch with us, visit our website at www.fedpacific.ca.